Henry, we're on um, 5.14.29. Okay, so we were talking about, I turned the recording on, correct? Yes, we were talking about uh, uh, spiritual feeders, probably would call them, especially if somebody claims that they're God. Um, there could be spirituals who may not have the full picture um, but that's different than someone actually saying, I'm God. It's a, it, for, for someone like Srila Prabhupada, it was such a insult and a joke, you know, especially as we're going to be reading um, the chapter 16 onwards, is just how vast Krishna's material energy is. Let's speak of their spiritual energy. And then someone who, you know, gets a toothache or something claims to be God. It's, it's, it, is incred it was incredulous. And he writes... In one of the very famous verses of the Bhagavatam, one one ten, in this age, many unscrupulous men manufacture their own religious faiths, <clears throat> which are not based on any revealed scriptures. And very often, people who are addicted to sense gratification are attracted by such institutions. Consequently, in the name of religion, so many sinful acts are being carried on that the people, in general, have neither peace of mind nor health of body. <coughs> So it's, um, it's a challenge to want to present people with, with true spirituality, but that is our challenge to do so. And, and it is sometimes our, our challenge to expose people who are just really taking advantage of innocent folks um, for their own um, benefit. One, one thing that we see perhaps... More right now is the, we we talked about this a little while ago. These prosperity churches, where you know the idea of promising that if you go to this church and and give this donation for this, uh, you you know you'll you'll become well to do. Um, that if we look at that from a Vedic point of view, obviously that is not uh, promoting pure bhakti. Obviously, right? <laughs> at the same time, we know that. Akama sava kama va moksha kama udharati. Tribhyena bhakti yogena yajeta purushampuram. That if you're, at least it's better to approach God for material things than to just think it's all by our own, our own strength. And the Vedas do, um, they do allow for that. So, you know, there's different levels, but at the same time, we know, chaigunya vishaya veda nistragunya bhavarjuna that. Really, to practice true spirituality, we have to transcend such uh, desires to approach God for material things. So any thoughts, uh, questions, comments on... And of course, we know Srila Prabhupada would say that this, in this world there's cheaters and cheated. These two categories are prominent. He learned that from his guru. Does anybody know why he mentioned herons? Because... It's a nice bird. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the only thing I can think of is that uh, it may be in the commentaries. But yes, herons are nice. <laughs> well, they're, um, they're beautiful, but when they attack for the fish, I mean, it's so vicious. Ah. Just swimming along, and then boom, you know. It's, uh, it, 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 I, I, I watch them a lot. They're absolutely beautiful. When they attack, look out. There you go. And, that's, and that is the context here, isn't it? What it's, not, it's not about their beauty. 
It's more about the viciousness of the world. It seems like the concept of those churches that you were just mentioning um, also has a spiritual um, element. What are those verses called that um, in the Bhagavatam, like when you read about Dhruva Maharaj, and then there are, are verses at the end that say okay. anyone who reads... Shruti reads, Right. So... So, in a spirit, completely spiritual sense, um, that concept of worship or, or read this and get this benefit is there. Yes, yes. So, right. So, uh, so from a pure bhakti point of view, it's it's uh, it's cheating. And from a, a more Vedic, taking a step back and thinking the bigger picture, perhaps it's uh, on the path. I would think that one difference is that in the in the Vedic scheme of things, that people would be more honest. They would say, "Okay, this is where I'm at right now. I worship God for material things, but I know it's not the highest." Where and and I can't speak for everybody who goes to a, a prosperity church, but for some of them, they might think, "Or this would be where it's really bad." Is that they think, "No, this is actually what real spirituality is." Shall we continue? So we are going up to verse 38. In this way, the descendants of the monkeys intermingle with each other. Oh, wait, did I miss 30? Yes. The pseudo-swamis, yogis, and incarnations who do not believe in the Supreme Personality of God are known as pasandis. They themselves are fallen and and cheated because they do not know the real path of spiritual advancement. And whoever goes to them is certainly cheated in his turn. When one is thus cheated, he sometimes takes shelter of the real followers of Vedic principles, Brahmanas, or those in Krishna consciousness, who teach everyone how to worship the Supreme Personality of Godhead according to the Vedic rituals. However, being unable to stick to these principles, these rascals again fall down and take shelter among sudras, who are very expert in making arrangements for sex indulgence. Sex is very prominent among monkeys, animals like monkeys and such people who are enlivened by sex may be called the descendants of monkeys. No one says that the Bhagavatam doesn't, but minces words sometimes. In this way, the descendants of the monkeys intermingle with each other and they are generally known as sudras. Without hesitating, they live and move freely, not knowing the goal of life. They are captivated simply by seeing the faces of one another, remind them of sense gratification. They are always engaged in material activities known as brahmya karma, and they work hard for material benefit. Thus they forget completely that one day their small lifespans will be finished and they will be degraded in the evolutionary cycle. <clears throat> Just as the, a monkey jumps from one tree to another, the conditioned soul jumps from one body to another. As the monkey is ultimately captured by the hunter and is unable to get out of captivity, the conditioned soul, being captivated by momentary sex pleasure, becomes attached to different types of bodies and is engaged in family life. Family life affords the conditioned soul a festival of momentary sex pleasure, and thus he is completely unable to get out of the material fluctuations. In this material world, 
when the conditioned soul forgets his relationship with the Supreme Personality of God and does not care for Krishna consciousness, he simply engages in different types of mischievous and sinful activities. Uh, just, um, <clears throat> he is then subjected to the threefold miseries and out of fear of the elephant of death, he falls into the darkest darkness found in, the, in a mountain cave. There we go. Just reading everyone. Text 35, 34. The conditioned soul suffers many miserable bodily conditions, such as being affected by severe cold and strong winds. He also suffers due to the activities of other living beings and due to natural disturbances. When he is unable to counteract them and has to remain in a miserable condition, he naturally becomes very morose because he wants to enjoy material facilities. Sometimes conditioned souls exchange money, but in due course of time, enmity arises because of cheating. Although they may be, there may be a little profit, the conditioned souls, souls cease to be friends and become enemies. Sometimes having no money, the conditioned soul does not get sufficient accommodations. Sometimes he doesn't even have a place to sit, nor does he have the other necessities. In other words, he falls into scarcity, and at that time when he is unable to secure the necessities by fair means, he decides to siege the property of others unfairly. When he cannot get the things he wants, he simply receives insults from others and becomes very morose. Although people may be enemies in order to fulfill their desires again and again, they sometimes get married. Unfortunately, their marriages do not last very long, and people involved are separated again by divorce or other means. The path in, of this material world is full of material miseries, and various troubles disturb the conditioned soul. Sometimes he loses and sometimes he gains. And in either case, the path is full of danger. Sometimes the conditioned soul is separated from his father by death or, or other circumstances. Leaving him aside, he gradually becomes attached to others, such as his children. In this way, the conditioned soul is sometimes illusioned and afraid. Sometimes he cries loudly out of fear. Sometimes he is happy maintaining his family, and sometimes he is overjoyed and sings melodiously. In this way, he becomes entangled and forgets his separation from the Supreme Personality of Godhead since time immemorial. He thus traverses the dangerous path of material existence, and on this path, he is not at all happy. Those who are self-realized simply take shelter of the Supreme Personality of Godhead in order to get out of this dangerous material existence. Without accepting the devotional path, one cannot get out of the clutches of material existence. The conclusion is, no one can be happy in material life. One must take the Krishna consciousness. And Prabhupada, his first sentence is so powerful. By thoroughly studying the materialistic way of life, any sane man can understand that there is not the least happiness in this world. What do we make of that sentence? So this is the Bhagavatam's paradigm or worldview or lenses or, or eyeglasses, whatever you want to use to describe it. It's the vision that the reader of the Bhagavatam is asked to cultivate <clears throat> not the least bit of happiness, you know, really? We might ask, how can you say that? And my understanding is it depends on our definition. And then the next sentence tells us how to get the right definition. 
However, due to continuing on the path of danger from time immemorial and not associating with saintly persons, the conditioned soul under illusion wants to enjoy this material world. And then Prabhupada also goes on to describe that he says materialistic life, a few sentences further, means continuous unhappiness. But sometimes we accept happiness as it appears between the gaps. And then he gives the, uh, the, the very interesting example of dunking someone's head underwater. And then the happiness that person feels when they're, when they're taken out of the world, they go, oh, oh. but what do you think about this? How can we say that if we thoroughly analyze this world, thoroughly and probably thoroughly analyze the materialistic way of life, any sane person will understand there is not the least happiness in this world. How can you justify such a bold statement? Some thoughts? Andy, you were going to say? Well, you see somebody that has everything you want and they commit suicide and you say, well, why would that be? I mean, the guy's a millionaire. Why would he kill himself? You know, why is this happening like this? Mm. Or why is there all the injustice and, you know. Mm. Okay, so you said two things. You see a person who you normally would envy <clears throat> and you see in one way or another, you said an extreme example, but one way or another, they don't seem to be any happier than I am. Although they can show, make a show of, the, you know, the beautiful wife or the huge house or the, you know, the uh, fancy cars or whatever. And then the second thing, what, what was your second point was? Just the uh, inhumanity and the injustice in the world. Injustice. Why, what is the cause of that? What is the fountain of that? Very good point. Yes. <clears throat> and that is not just Black Life Matters in America. I think my assumption is, having traveled to, I think, 48 countries, is that it's, it's somewhere, somehow or other, in every country, there's some kind of group that is marginalized. That's been my experience. Thank you for that. Others, uh, thoughts about this very bold statement and the fact that thorough analysis any sane person would come to this conclusion. So the key aspect is the materialistic way of life. Srila Prabhupada says that, you know, any sane, this place is not a place for gentlemen. Right, because of the materialistic way. So that is the important aspect. So if you're looking to satisfy our senses, in reality, what could appear as happiness and distress, actually everything is inauspicious. Mm. If you're trying to enjoy this material world and seek sense gratification, then everything is just going to cause more and more misery and more and more suffering. We have to understand, analyze it and come to the uh, true understanding that the only happiness is that in devotion service, where we transcend the three modes of material nature. And then we won't be stuck in the materialistic way of life, but rather we'll be leading a spiritual way of life, which is full of all auspiciousness. Thank you. Could someone look up the verse, Yehi Sansparsa Jaboga? And bring, uh, I need the English translation for that. Um, yes, so, so that desire to enjoy is what, it's so interesting, isn't it, that, it's, it's counterintuitive that the more you 
try to seek your own pleasures in materialistically, the uh, less you get. So thank you, Sukhan. So she, uh, Subanda kindly says, and tell, yes, so an intelligent person does not take part in the sources of misery. And what are those miseries? Exactly the opposite of what most people think, which are due to contact with the material senses. And then they, and then Krishna call, or Prabhupada's translation, he calls them pleasures. Osana Kunti, such pleasures have a beginning and an end. And so the wise man does not delight in that delight in them. So Jiva Taprabhu has brought up a very important point here that it's so counterintuitive that, that the more you try to satisfy your senses outside of serving Krishna, the more dissatisfaction you get. Or even if you think you're getting some happiness, it's temporary. And then what to speak of the reaction you may get in an in the next life. So, yeah, powerful. Thank you for finding that uh, verse. Other thoughts about this? I like the way also Jiva Tattvabhu highlighted this word, materialistic way of life. If we think we're the body, it's counterintuitive. Very good point. That's the, that's where the counterintuitiveness comes, Gurudas. Very good. I just found that to be such a powerful sentence. But we may, and if we don't think like that, I guess we're not being thorough, we're not being thoroughly analytical, or we're not sane, or both. <laughs> Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes. Um, also in uh, text 15 of chapter 8, Krishna calls this place Dukalayam. Yeah. The creator himself is certifying this place as a place of miseries and sufferings. And here we, the conditioned so living beings are saying, no, 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 it's not. It is, everything is fine, cozy, comfortable. Oh, yeah, nothing can be so rosy and pinkyish than this. So it, it's basically the creator himself is certifying that. Thank you. And then the way out is given in this purport, associated with devotees. So the, the analysis of the problem and then the, the uh, medicine is given. Okay, so let us continue. <laughs> Saint, uh, text 39 and we are going up to 43. Saintly persons who are friends to all living entities have a peaceful consciousness. They, are control they have controlled their senses and minds and they easily attain the path of liberation, the path back to Godhead. Being unfortunate and attached to the miserable material conditions, a materialistic person cannot associate with them. There are many great saintly kings who are very expert in performing sacrificial rituals and very competent in conquering other kingdoms. Yet despite their power, they could not attain the loving service of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. This is because... Those great kings could not even conquer the false consciousness of I am this body, as Gurudas Prabhu was telling us, and this is my property, I and mine. Thus they simply created enmity with rival kings, fought with them, and died without having discharged life's real mission. By the way, I'll just read this. 
the last sentence of that purpose says, it really doesn't matter what activity a man engages in. If he can simply satisfy the Supreme Lord, his life is successful. Text 41. When the conditioned soul accepts the shelter of the creeper of fruitive activity, he may be elevated by his pious activities to higher planetary systems and thus gain liberation from hellish conditions. But unfortunately, he cannot remain there. After reaping the results of his pious activities, he has to return to the lower planetary systems. In this way, he perpetually goes up and down. Prabhupada would often quote the verse, Shinya Pune Marcha Loka Vishanti. After your karma runs out, you again come down to Hare Krishna. Hare Bo? Yes. So when Prabhupada mentioned that the, the analysis by a sane man, he's actually indicating a person uh, beyond uh, someone who seeks the pious activities. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yes. Because... Uh, not a question, just a comment. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So, I also think I'm not... I'm, <clears throat> I don't think I'm really a sane man. The only way that I can figure this out is because the experiential practicing of Krishna consciousness has given me the vision to be able to understand this. But normally, I'm not really sane. Well, um, if Henry's not sane, we're in trouble. (laughs) Because I'm a lot worse. (laughs) Well, but that sanity is a gift of the spiritual master also, I believe. Yes, it's, yes, it's the mercy of devotees and Krishna, yes. Guru Krishna Prasade Bhai Bhakti Lata Beach. I think that was just quoted. Yes, yes, so we're all, we're all, everyone is a dependent on mercy. So let's continue. Having summarized the teachings of Jadapartha, Sukadeva Goswami said, My dear King Pariksit, the path indicated by Jadapartha is like the path followed by Garuda, the carrier of the Lord. And ordinary kings are just like flies. Flies cannot follow the path of Garuda. And to date, none of the great kings and victorious leaders could follow this path of devotional service, not even mentally, obviously other than the devotee kings. While in the prime of life, the great Maharaj Bharata gave up everything because he was so fond of serving the Supreme Personality of God, Uttama Shloka. He gave up his beautiful wife, his nice children, great friends, and an enormous empire. Although those things were very difficult to give up, Maharaj Bharata was so exalted that he gave them up as one gives up stool after evacuating. That's quite a uh, vivid example. Such was the greatness of his majesty. So Sukadeva Goswami is glorifying, glorifying Jadaparata. And Prabhupada writes in the purport, we have to learn from the great King Bharat how to become cautious in cultivating Krishna consciousness. A little inattention will retard our devotional service for the time being. Yet, any service rendered to the Supreme Personality of God it is never lost. Swapam apyasya 
dharmasya trayate mahato bhayat. A little devotional service rendered sincerely is a permanent asset. And a little later, Prabhupada writes, this Krishna conscious movement is giving everyone a chance to engage in devotional service for at least some time. A little service will give one an impetus to advance and thus make one's life successful. So there is on one, so Prabhupada is very interesting the way he's talking about this in the purport. On the one hand, he's saying there's a need to be super careful. In a lecture he gave in 1974, he said, spiritual life is a very precarious platform. It is just like a razor's edge. It has to be dealt with very, with great determination, and one has to be very rigid in following the spiritual path in order to achieve success, right? Because a razor's edge, just one little, you're just off a little bit, and instead of shaving your face, you cut your face, right? So there's that side of being very careful, and Prabhupada is admonishing us to do so. And then, interestingly, he then says, he then gives some encouragement. So in one sense, some very strictness, yes, and some encouragement that, not that being strict is not encouraging, but then saying that any service rendered is to our permanent benefit. Hmm? And that even doing some service, at least for some time, one gets the impetus to advance more and more. So there's this encouragement and also trying to be as strict as possible. So I thought I would just discuss momentarily something that you could say it comes from mundane psychology, but I, I believe it can be used very much in Krishna's service. And also I've seen this dynamic at play. Maybe we've talked about this some time ago, but the difference between shame and guilt. Uh, shame is, or oh, guilt is, I did a bad thing. Shame is, I am bad. You, you see the, the, I hope you see the difference there. Right. Um, and so the guilt is feeling guilty about some behavior we did. But the shame is just making this just, I'm a bad person. I'm just bad. You know, this whole um, idea like that. And and I think we have to be careful when we're, say, reading the great prayers, the prayers of the great acharyas. They might say things like, I'm lower than the worm and stool or something like that, right? And we may apply that in a shameful way rather than a guilty way. So, yes, we can, we should feel guilty. Um, guilt can be very healthy, especially when it leads to trying to improve, right? So we can feel guilty that, you know, I don't know, during the pandemic, I'm getting up an hour and a half later or something because I'm not going to Mandalartic anymore or whatever. That, that's, but to just say, I'm just terrible because of that is not actually even Shastric because Shastric, Shastra says, Chivera Swarupahaya Krishnara Nityadas. We were all, uh, we're all parts of Krishna. We're all ultimately pure. We've just been contaminated by the material nature. So, so we can, so it's okay to take an honest look at our devotional life. Say, you know, that I'm, I'm pretty good about this. At least I, whatever, I chant 16 rounds at one sitting, or I read the Bhagavatam every day, or 
I make sure I only take prashadam or whatever it is that we do, or, or I only I take prashadam twice a week. Something, you know, we can look at the positive and say, yes, there is this room for improvement. And sometimes that we beat ourselves up too much. I'm not I'm not particularly pointing this at anyone on this call, but and and just uh, having this very um, inaccurate and but more than inaccurate unhealthy psychological view of ourselves so I, I think this is this can be uh, important because it can lead you know the shame can lead to things like uh, depression and, and inertia even sometimes suicide if it's if it's very extreme whereas guilt can often learn to okay I'm going to talk to some devotees and I'm going to improve this and I'm going to get better at this. And if you ever feel that you associate with a devotee who's kind of more in the shame category, I, I like this quote that uh, shame cannot exist where there is empathy. So if we listen to that devotee, take time to hear them and listen to them carefully and talk to them about Christian consciousness, that shame can go away and they can become more psychologically fit. And and, and this does connect with Krishna consciousness because as we know, Bhaktivinoda Thakur says, until one attains a very exalted stage of bhava, we have to consider our physical, our emotional, our social, and our spiritual health. So when I read this, it is what came to mind. Some thoughts? Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes, Ananda Rupa Mataji. So about uh, guilt and shame and um, in light of recent happenings, uh, I was thinking about it the other day and um, just trying to put together all the teachings and information and to, you know, introspect, introspecting about it. Um, I felt that um, basically there, we are in certain modes of nature. We have certain nature from birth and through life experiences and, uh, um, and our, uh, you know, association, that nature might uh, be influenced a little bit, but we constantly keep learning in the teachings from our spiritual teachers and also from the scriptures that we can transcend these modes of nature. But when someone is really unhappy or going through a lot in their life due to whatever reasons, sometimes they are in forgetfulness of all this. I mean, I'm talking about devotees. Let's say devotees. Sure. And and uh, so it, it is where our friends and our well-wishers come into picture if we are totally cut off from them or for some reason not um, able to speak out to them for the reason of being judged or, you know, shame, uh, whatever, you know, our inhibitions. That is where it becomes difficult and and. You know, prayers do work wonders, but it is in those situations people really forget. It seems like people tend to forget all the good things which can help them. Well, and, yeah, and, and then I was wondering that maybe it's, it's then really that they are really helpless in the karma cycle. They are like a prey in the karma cycle. They are, in spite of having all the valuable guidance, priceless information and guidance and people around them, they don't have any help. The mind tends to go towards, especially in Kali Yuga, goes towards the negative. Uh, there's that famous verse in the 11th canto. Uh, maybe someone can find it. Bayam dviti nibeshashat. My Sanskrit isn't perfect on that. Um, and fear 
is such a strong thing in, in, in all of life and in Kali Yuga. And fear of making mistakes, fear of being embarrassed, fear of people critic, uh, judging me. Uh, these are all, oh, wow, Suganda, she is sharp. Wow, she found it like immediately. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes, I was going to say something. Let me see if I can remember it now. Fear. Uh, fear is such a, it's such a strong thing. But no, as you were talking, there was something else I was going to say. Uh, I'll probably remember you it later. Saying we tend to, uh, one tends to be negative. In the oh, country. I remember what I was going to say. This is my wife was listening to a class by um, Radhika Raman Prabhu recently, and he was talking about karma. And he was saying that usually when we're devotees, usually as devotees, we talk about karma as reactions, which is true. Right? That is well, another definition. He said is action, and so he said one of our main actions should always be. Our, our karma should be doing good for others, reaching out when someone is not feeling well or feeling, you know, or mentally or physically, and always trying to do good for others. That's that's also karma, but it's, of course, karma in, in, in the positive sense, not getting the reaction, but the action of karma. So thank so, you for that. So reaching out to others, showing compassion to them, uh, with, with the thought, in our, I mean, we may not directly express to them, but thinking in our mind, praying for them that this is a devotee or you know, this, let this person develop some devotion for Krishna and I want to help him. Right. So uh, that is as long as we are aware of it and from the victim perspective, I mean the person who is going through the, you know, whatever misery is due to mind or other people, um, if, if they really want to do something about their life, they should step up and really like instead of just bottling it up inside, they, they should find ways. What, what is the best they can do? I mean, it's, it gets really tricky, but, you know, and then not, not a lot of people in, in distressed times really th right away think of praying. And I really believe prayers make wonders, but that does happen that the first like, thing is, yeah. you know, to, to let me deal with it myself or give up hope. Or... Well, that's also the ego, isn't it? Either, I, you know, either let me, you know, I'll do it myself or no one can help me. Both of them are ego trips. Um, and it, but it's hard. It's hard sometimes to seek help. It, and therefore, one of our best things is when we try to help someone is just be a good listener. It's usually one of the most powerful things. But we do... We, it's, it's, we do have, it's tricky in, in, a, in an organization like ISKCON because we have s such high standards. And when people can't rise to that standard, their, their fear of like rejection, if somebody finds out that they're not on that standard, it can be quite strong. And it's a shame because the reality is 95% of the devotees would treat such a person with great compassion and not with harshness. But we, but, but it's 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 a challenging thing. Yes. Any other thoughts on this? Yeah, Hare Krishna, Prabhu. Yes, Anand Prabhu. Prabhu, I've kind of realized in last few months actually that how important it is to have um, empathic communication with others because I think our society, generally material or spiritual, we tend to be more judgmental, mm. and those judgments lead to not it, it kind of focuses on a different aspect, a wrong aspect rather than the actual problem. 
So if I do a mistake, for example, it's not the problem with me. It's just that for one instance, I made one mistake and, and it's the activity that I performed can be fixed. Like that mistake can be fixed. It's not the problem with me it's, itself. So I think, but we tend to be so judgmental that even someone else who does a mistake thinks that I'm the problem uh-huh. and they try to blame themselves. So, and I don't know why they don't teach this in schools. <laughs> it should be, uh-huh. it should be from the beginning. Someone should be, we should be taught of how to be empathic with others and not be judgmental because that I feel like is the root problem um, that we all have in the society. I, I totally agree with you in terms of if I was organizing curriculum for children, um, I would put a much higher emphasis on things like listening skills and empathy and communications and, you know, only let the people who are science oriented have to study chemistry and physics and yeah. things like that, which, you know, I mean, I don't remember anything from chemistry or physics now. <laughs> Henry, do you remember your chemistry or physics now? No. <laughs> barely, barely, barely. I mean, and, and you know, some actually some scientific stuff has changed, you yeah. know. Yes, thank you. Matter of fact, the, the main thing that I do, well, of course, speaking and writing and all that, but the main skill that I learned in high school that I use now is typing. <laughs> that, was a, that was the best thing I learned in high school. <laughs> And before, those were with typewriters that were not even electric. Yet, you know, I'm, I'm that old. Okay, let's carry on. Good discussion. Let's carry on. So text 44, and we're finishing this chapter. Sukadeva Goswami continued, My dear king, the activities of Bharat Maharaj are wonderful. He gave up everything difficult for others to give up. He gave up his kingdom, his wife, and his family. His opulence was so great that even the demigods envied it. Yet he gave it up. It was quite befitting a great personality like him to be a great devotee. He could renounce everything because he was so attracted to the beauty, opulence, reputation, knowledge, strength, and renunciation of the supreme personality of God at Krishna. Krishna is so attractive, and one can give up all desirable things for his sake. Indeed, even liberation is considered insignificant for those whose minds are attracted to the loving service of the Lord. Even though in the body of a deer, Maharaj Bharat did not forget the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Therefore, when he was giving up the body of a deer, he loudly uttered the following prayer. The Supreme Personality of Godhead is sacrifice personified. He gives the results of ritualistic activity. He is the protector of religious systems the personification of mystic yoga, the source of all power, the controller of the entire creation, and the super soul of every, in every living entity. He is beautiful and attractive. I am quitting this body, offering obeisances unto him, and hoping that I may perpetually engage in his transcendental loving service. Uttering this, Maharaj Bharat left his body. So now you know why he got the body of Jada Bharat, because he had such great devotion when he was leaving this world. Devotees interested in hearing and chanting Shravanam Kirtanam regularly discuss the pure characteristics of Bharat Maharaj and praise his activities. If one submissively hears and chants the all auspicious, uh, about the all auspicious Maharaj Bharat, one's lifespan and material opulence is certainly increased. There you go. There's your Shuti Fal, uh, Guru Das Prabhu. 
Yes, one can be one can become very famous and easily attain promotion to the heavenly planets or attain liberation by merging into the existence of the Lord. Whatever one desires can be attained simply by hearing, chanting, and glorifying the activities of Bart Maharaj. In this way, one can fulfill all his material and spiritual desires. One does not have to ask anyone for these things, for simply by studying the life of Bharat, Maharaj Bharata, one can attain all desirable things. So when I asked Banuswami about these, I think you asked me to ask him some month or two ago, and he said, yes, they, 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 they just, those Shruti Falls apply to people who have different desires, but naturally, the reading itself is devotional service, so it's just showing that even if you want material things, you get it through devotional service, but if you really want Krishna, that's what counts. So we are ending our wonderful association that we've had for, gosh, it's probably been almost two months. We've been associating with Bharat Maharaj in different ways as, uh, as, as the king, as the deer, and as the um, avatut, and as the person who delivered uh, Maharaj Rahugana. So we're so fortunate, aren't we, that we had that Great Souls Association. So we uh, offer our respectful obeisances to Maharaj Bharat and Jad Bharat, and we thank them for uh, giving us their association or their, his association in his different births. Wasn't it quite a journey? <laughs> quite a wonderful journey. Okay, so we are embarking on something new. The glories and descendants of King Priya Vrata. And we're going up to verse number four. Srila Sukadeva Goswami continued. The son of Bharat Maharaj, known as Sumati, followed the path of Rishabhadev. But in the age of Kali, some unscrupulous people imagined him to be Lord Buddha himself. These people, who will actually be atheistic and of bad character, will interpret the Vedic principles in an imaginary, infamous way to support their activities. Thus, these simple people will accept Sumati as Lord Buddha Dev and propagate the theory that everyone should follow the principles of Sumati. In this way, they will be carried away by mental concoction. From Sumati, a son named Devatajit was born by the womb of his wife named Britta-sena. Thereafter, in the womb of Asuri, the wife of Devatajit, a son named Devayumna was begotten. Devayuma begot in the womb of his wife, Denumati, a son named Parameshti. Parameshti begot a son named Pratiha in the womb of his wife, Suvarchala. King Pratiha personally propagated the principles of self-realization. In this way, not only was he purified, but he became a great devotee of the supreme person, Lord Vishnu, and directly realized him. And I just, I just picked up this half of a sentence in the purport. Probably said, "A real preacher cannot be bogus." <laughs> so we should, in the mood of what we were talking about about guilt, we should be working at not being bogus. It's a, it may be a lifetime endeavor, but that should be uh, one of our. A real preacher cannot be bogus. We. In other words, 
he, we, we try to follow in the footsteps of Haridas Thakur when Sanatana Goswami said, some people preach very nicely but are not a very good personal behavior. And some people are very good personal behavior but do not help others. But Haridas Thakur is the greatest devotee in the universe because he is expert at both. Any comments on that or thoughts? Okay, then we will carry on. Oh, here's uh, Sukanda. Yes, thank you. Um, this is the purport to 119.1. Repentance is natural for a good man, and such repentance delivers a devotee from all kinds of sins accidentally committed. The devotees are naturally faultless. Accidental sins committed by a devotee are sincerely regretted, and by the grace of the Lord, all sins unwilling, unwillingly committed by a devotee are burnt in the fire of repentance. Thank you. Here's a comment. Prabhupada mentions in several places that uh, just as in other places he mentioned we, we should always keep death in, at our front, but he, he also mentions that uh, we should always remember our uh, previous sinful lives in, and I take that in the sense that um, we're or I'm kind of uh, I've got these radical tendencies and unless I stay on the, whatever little path I can manage of devotional service that uh, these uh, sinful tendencies will come back or um, we're, we're encouraged in different ways to uh, remember our uh, mistakes in that way, previous mistakes, well, not, but not in, a, not, not in a guilt sense. My, now, I've, now I've embraced the teachings of my spiritual master. What were you going to say, Prabhu? I was going to say that, if I recall those statements when Prabhupada brings it up, the, the main thrust is gratitude. That we, that we should remember where we came from and we should be so grateful for where we are by, by Krishna's mercy, by the spiritual master's mercy. And we're again talking about psychological health. One of the greatest ways to be psychologically healthy is to remember what we're grateful for in a, on a regular basis. Some people say things like you should wake yeah. up every morning and think of three things that you're grateful for. Uh, it, 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 in, in psychology, it's, it's, it's like a, it's one of the best ways to reframe, right? And we are taught to be expert reframers. The whole verse, and, uh, and uh, uh, Sukhanda can put this up, uh, is Tatenu Kampam Sutramikshamano. That verse, because that verse is saying that when, when bad things happen, reframe them as Krishna's mercy. Right? And be grateful that that verse is the gratitude verse of the universe. Uh, uh, there she goes, she put it there already. Um, 14.8. Yeah. Um, 
And it's, 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 I was, I, I just made this connection just now, you know, that, that, that verse and reframing and gratitude. So it's a very healthy thing. And of course, it's super Krishna conscious when we relate it to Krishna consciousness to be in this mood of gratitude. And it, it, it'd probably be a, a great sadhana to do that, you know, uh, before we take rest or when we wake up in the morning to recall one or two or three, whatever number you want, of things that we're grateful for. It, it starts the whole day or ends the whole day in such a wonderful way. And for devotees, naturally, their gratitude is going to be somehow or other directed towards Krishna or Krishna's devotees or something about Krishna consciousness or, or whatever. So it's a wonderful way to remember Krishna. And that's the goal, right? Uh, so 1018, 10.14.8 says, My dear Lord, one who earnestly waits for you to bestow your causeless mercy upon them, all the while patiently suffering the reactions of his past misdeeds. See how that's a reframing? You're, you're going through all these reactions from your past misdeeds, but you have this, you're just thinking of Krishna's blessings. And if you sure. do that, yeah. Um, and I don't take anything away from what you just said. I, th I think it's a, a wonderful, um, both your recommendation and the and connecting it to the verse. Um, I was just thinking that if if everyone adopts this suggestion you just made about uh, and and the direction we're going about gratitude, then we won't have some of the fanaticism that devotees have exhibited in the past of, oh, you know, uh, the, these are sinful karmis that can, you know, uh, they're lower, they, or they, you know. Yeah. What is that, what is that uh, saying in, in English? Uh, there, but by the grace of God, go yeah. I. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for that. Other thoughts? Then we're going up to the next uh, verse that we highlighted, and that is verse number seven. You know, I just wanted to say about I've been feeling a lot of gratitude during this time that I've been um, quarantined here, actually, because um, somehow or other, because I was in a little bit of a Krishna conscious place when it started, I knew how that I was going to use this time to really focus my energy you know, on making a positive change in my life and moving forward in my Krishna consciousness. And, um, and, um, I, and I have felt a great deal of gratitude, actually. Um, every, it's really the, the strongest thing that's kept me going, actually, is the gratitude for, you know, Krishna's put me in a beautiful, wonderful position here. I mean, I'm much less hurt by the pain that's going on out there than anybody else. And I'm incredibly grateful. And I appreciate every little thing. I appreciate the trees and the birds and the chipmunks and the rabbits and the deer and they're running around and, and, you know, and the clouds going by. Everything somehow is more wonderful than it ever was and, and, and you know I, and anyway I remember Bhaktivedanta Swami used to say we have to cultivate an attitude of gratitude yeah yes and when a devotee does that even though the material world probably mentions this in that purport we studied I think the first purport we looked at 29 of the last chapter that 
even though it's a place of misery, if a devotee develops that mentality, then vishva purna sukhayate, then they see the whole world as a place of happiness because they see it as connected to Krishna. So, it's so interesting how Krishna, even in Krishna consciousness, you can view things at different levels. And, and uh, I remember His Grace Druda Karma Prabhu once gave a VIHE seminar on the different levels of God consciousness in the Bhagavad Gita. So let's move on to, thank you for that, Henry. Let's move on to text five. In the womb of his wife, Suvarchala, Pratiha begot three sons named Pratiharta, Prashtuta, and Udgata. These three sons were very expert in performing Vedic rituals. Pratiharta begot two sons named Aja and Bhumha in the, white, in the womb of his wife named Stuti. In the womb of his wife, Rishi Kulya, King Bhuma begot a son named Udgitha. From Udgitha's wife, Devakulya, a son named Prashtava was born, and Prashtava begot a son named Vibhu through his wife, Nyutsa. In the, in the womb of his wife, Rati, Vibhu begot a son named Prithusena. Prithusena begot a son named Nakta in the womb of his wife named Akvuti. Nakta's wife was Druti, and from her womb, the great king Gaya was born. Gaya was very famous and pious, and we're going to hear all about Gaya in the next, uh, no, in this chapter. Yeah. <clears throat> he was the best of saintly kings. Lord Vishnu and his expansions, who are meant to protect the universe, are always situated in the transcendental mode of goodness known as Vishuddha Sattva. Being the direct expansion of Lord Vishnu, King Gaya was also situated in the Vishuddha Sattva. Because of this, Maharaj Gaya was fully equipped with transcendental knowledge. Therefore, he is called Mahapurusha. Text 7, which is also very long. King Gaya gave full protection and security to the citizens so that their personal property would not be disturbed by undesirable elements. He also saw that there was sufficient food to feed all the citizens. He would sometimes distribute gifts to the citizens to satisfy them. He would sometimes call meetings and satisfy the citizens with sweet words. He would also give them good instructions on how to become first-class citizens. Such were the, the characteristics of King Gaia's royal order. Besides all this, King Gaia was a householder who strictly observed the rules and regulations of household life. He performed sacrifices and was an unalloyed pure devotee of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. He was called Mahapurusha because as a king, he gave the citizens all facilities. And as a householder, he executed all his duties so that at the end, he became a strict devotee of the Supreme Lord. As a devotee, he was always ready to give respect to other devotees and to engage in the devotional service of the Lord. This is the Bhakti Yoga process. Due to all these transcendental activities, King Gaya was always free from the bodily conception. He was full in Brahman realization and consequently he was very always jubilant. He did not experience material limitation, although he was perfect in all respects. He was not proud, nor was he anxious to rule the kingdom. Oh, but writes, <laughs> this is kind of interesting, right? In the, it is understood from the Ramayana that when Vibhishana became friends with Lord Ramachandra, he promised that if by chance he will break the laws of friendship with Lord Ramachandra, he would become a Brahmana or king in Kali Yuga. 
In this age, as Bibishana indicated, both Brahmanas and kings are in a wretched state, a condition. Actually, there are no kings or Brahmanas in this age, and due to their absence, the whole world is in a chaotic condition and is always in distress. Compared to present standards, King Gaya was a true representative of Lord Vishnu, and therefore he was known as Mahapurusha. Hmm. So, when you think of who are the Brahmins and kings in Kali Yuga, of course, there may be some good leaders and there may be some good scholars and intelligentsia, and we won't mention any names, but we do know that around the world there are also leaders who uh, certainly seem to fall into this category that was mentioned here. Um, also, I, meant, I, I thought, you know, the 12 exemplary qualities of a leader are mentioned in this verse. Uh, he ensures that citizens feel secure and protect by protecting their property. He ensures that citizens have sufficient food, and those both fall under poshina or the act of nourishing. Uh, three, he's pleased his he pleased he pleased his citizens with gifts. Hmm. He met with his citizens and spoke sweetly to them. He gave his citizens good instructions on how to become first class. He lived an exemplary family life, strictly followed all the rules. And as part of his household duties, he performed sacrifice. Um, because of his excellence as a monarch and a devotee and a family man, he was called Mahapurusha. As a devotee, he showed respect to other devotees. He was an exemplary Vaishnava and lived in spiritual consciousness. Uh, and he was never proud or materially attached as he ruled the kingdom. So we heard about this great devotee, Bharat Maharaj and Jadabharata, and now we're hearing about this great devotee, King Gaya. I'm thinking King Gaya really loved everybody in his kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, could you imagine? <laughs> it's hard to imagine today. Everyone actually liking a, a leader and not going on Facebook and, you know, <laughs> saying things about him. <clears throat> okay, so we'll continue. And we're going up to verse 12, or was it 11? This is a short, short chapter. My dear King Prichit, those who are learned scholars in the histories of the Puranas categorize, uh, I'm sorry, eulogize and glorify King Gaia with the following verses. The great, the great King Gaia used to perform all kinds of Vedic rituals. He was highly intelligent and expert in studying all the Vedic literatures. He maintained the religious principles and possessed all kinds of opulence. He was a leader among gentlemen and a servant of the devotees. He was totally qualified. He was a totally qualified plenary expansion of the supreme personality of Godhead. Therefore, who could equal him in the performance of gigantic ritualistic ceremonies? So, in uh, text nine, eight more qualities of King Gaia are explained: that he performed unequal, gigantic, Vedic rituals. He was highly intelligent and expert in studying the Vedas. He maintained religious principles. He possessed all opulences. He was a, this is a beautiful thing, a leader among gentlemen. He served devotees. 
He was totally qualified, plenary expansion of God. And and being satisfied with him, the chaste and honest daughters of uh, Maharaj Daksha blessed Maharaj Gaya. Well, that comes up in this verse, sorry. All the chaste and honest daughters of Maharaj Daksha, this is text 10, such as Shraddha, Maitri, and Daya, whose blessings were always effective, bathed Maharaj Gaya with sanctified water. Indeed, they were very satisfied with Maharaj Gaya. The planet Earth personified gave, came as a cow, and as though she saw her calf, she delivered milk profusely when she saw all the good qualities of Maharaj Gaya. In other words, Maharaj Gaya was able to derive all benefits from the Earth and thus satisfy the desires of the citizens. However, he personally had no desires. Although King Gaya had no personal desire for sense gratification, all his desires were fulfilled by virtue of his performing Vedic, of Vedic rituals. All the kings with whom Maharaj Gaya had to fight were forced to fight on religious principles. They were very satisfied with his fighting and they would present all kinds of gifts to him. Similarly, all the Brahmins in, this, in his kingdom were very satisfied with King Gaya's munificent, munificent charities. Consequently, the Brahmanas contributed a sixth of their pious activities for King Gaya's benefit in the next life. So, um, so he had no desires to fulfill, and as a cow affectionately gives blessings to her calf, the earth saw Gaia's good qualities and gave him blessings and everything that was needed. So in the purport uh, to 11, Prabhupada writes, when brahmanas and saintly persons are honored, they part with their pious activities, giving them to those who honor them and render them service. So I thought I'd talk about this a little bit. Honor here doesn't mean they puff them up. <laughs> they, um, they were respected and served nicely and, in, in, and, uh, and were dealt with in a kind-hearted way. And, and naturally then a devotee reciprocates with that kind-heartedness. And and these people, the, um, and so therefore the Brahmins give their charity with their whole heart. As things are done in a heart-to-heart way, in this way, so they they happily give their piety, their they they give their blessings to the others, the, the Chatriyas and others, when they've been dealt with in a kind-hearted and loving way. So I just want I I just want to clarify that because we might think honored means that well they you know they they gave their blessings because they got a lot of gold or they got you know um, everything was cooked in ghee that's not the currency in which real brahma brahmins deal with they, they, it's more heart to heart um, krishna conscious sharing any thoughts on this Only that the descriptions of Gaia seem to match those of Prithu Maharaj. Yeah, yes. We're, we're, it's very interesting how we hear so much of uh, glorification in the Bhagavatam of Chatriyas who were great devotees. I, I, I've never done a study, but I wonder if it's even more than Brahmanas. You know, you have all the five Pandavas, you have Dhruva, you have Prithu, you have Gaya, you 
Now, of course, Chada Bharata was a Brahmana. Oh, no, he was no, he was also a king, right? Yeah, in um, in, in is Maharaj Bharata. Parikshit Maharaj. Yeah, Parikshit Maharaj. Yeah. So, but of course, uh, Jada Bharata's path of uh, Avajuta was extremely uh, uh, different. Yes. And we hear about a few people, even Rishabdev became a Avajuta at, right at the end of his life. He was another king, right? Maharaj Rishabdev. And Swayambhuva Manu and Priyavrata. Wow, when you think about it, so many, right? Other people that we've studied these past few years were, were, were um, Raja Rishis. And we don't see too many Raja Rishis in the world today. Shall we continue? Hare Krishna, Prabhu. Yes, Nandini. Hare Krishna. I was just uh, looking at this description in verse 10 about the cow who delivers milk profusely when she saw all the good qualities of Maharaja Gaya. And, you know, in, in our nowadays, the, the cows, they are treated with RBST in order to give milk. <laughs> it was wow. such a sharp contrast. Thank you for that. Yes. I'm not too familiar with what RBS, but I guess you would, as a scientist, you would know what that is. Uh, it's, cruelty. It. it's cruelty. It's cruelty. You, you, you see it sometimes on packages. They'll say not used with... It's a hormone. Yeah. Does it actually cause the animal's pain, Mataji? No, it's a hormone. It's an unnatural application of a hormone. Sure. Which, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's very different than... I, I, I'm pretty convinced that I can't imagine any cows being better taken care of than the two that we have. <laughs> you know, Gopal goes there every single day, he and his wife. And they get organic vegetables twice a week or something like that from moms, and that you know things that they were that that they you know they can't sell but are still in perfectly good shape, and you know these you know they're they're so well taken care of. Mm. Yeah, they look beautiful. Yeah, they're spoiled rotten actually, <laughs> in, in a positive sense of the word. <laughs> You see, when a cow is happy, he can get, she can give milk. But when she's not happy, it's, it's not the same thing again. You have to force them, huh? By this, this enzyme, or this uh, hormone or something like that. Yeah, so it's given that cows, when they are happy and well taken care of, they give abundance of milk. Prithamara's story gives, Shiro Prabhupada explains it. That's a reflection to see, we should measure how much milk she is giving, not the hormone one, but, you know, natural way. And that determines how well she's taken care of, how well she's loved. and Nicely. Nice. Well, I know that the cows in Gitanagari are taken care of nicely. Uh, if in previous times, Kalini Mataji, she's no longer with us, but she was a, a walking saint. And she took care of the cows so nicely. And now Dhruva and uh, Parijata Mataji are, um, and others now at the farm there, they... they uh, my wife was commenting how uh, how 
the loving relationship she sees when she goes out there between the devotees and the cows. It's it's a natural relationship, isn't it? And thank you for bringing that up, Nandimuki, baby. It's a very natural relationship. And, um, you know, Balabhadra from Iskalp told me one thing, that in ancient times there was such a closeness between the cows and the people that the cows could sense if someone had, a person had some illness and the cows would go and eat the correct kind of herbs that would cure that and it would come in the milk and therefore the cows were actually doctoring to the people. Cool. <laughs> That's very cool. Well, I don't know if, um, of course, I don't think, go ahead, someone's going to say something? I, um, I don't think, because uh, they don't give milk right now, but uh, Gita and Vani, but when when Gopal drives up, they go nuts. They're so happy to see him and his wife. Uh, and they just like, you know, they, they know the car, you know, they, the whole thing, you know, they just, they, they're really happy. And I'm sure Gopal, and his, I, I keep on saying his wife, I, I keep, I forget her name. Does anyone remember her name? Um, Ray. What's that? Ray. Suret? Her name, uh, like in, in Chinese characters, Ray, the pronunciation oh. is like. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm sure they're very, very happy taking care of those cows also. They, they look like they're totally blissed out every time they come to the temple, which is every day. Yeah, amazing. Okay, so we have uh, well, a few more verses to finish this chapter. And then what I'd like to do is remind everyone to read what I sent out the other day, um, written by Burijan Prabhu about the, uh, the description of the universe. And then we will start studying the description of the universe next week. Okay, but please do read that. I may also send you one other thing to read. It's a, if anyone here has a good way to convert PDF files to Word files, uh, that would be helpful. I don't have that program that does that. And there's one other article that he's written, but the first three pages really aren't necessary to send out. So I wanted to get it into a document where I can cut those three pages out and send you the rest. So if anyone like... Krishna Prabhu, you can send it to me. I can help you. Or go ahead. Oh, thank you, Shakshi. All right, I'll send it to you. Thank you, Prabhu. And then I'll send that out also. Uh, or thank you, Jay, also. Now we have all these uh, people. <laughs> Great. And it'll be, I think it'll be very exciting and very interesting and very increasing our bhakti to study the, uh, the rest of the fifth canto, especially when we put it in the right perspective. But let's just finish reading these last few verses. Um, in King Gaia's sacrifices, there was a great supply of the intoxicant known as Soma. King Indra used to come and become intoxicated by drinking large quantities of Soma Rasa. Also, the Supreme Personality of God, Lord Vishnu, the Yagna Purusha, also came and personally accepted all the sacrifices offered unto him with pure and firm devotion in the sacrificial arena. Uh, we can talk about another time the intoxicant uh, uh, and that whole question that that brings up. When the Supreme Personality of God is pleased by a person's actions, automatically all the demigods, human beings, animals, birds, bees, creepers, trees, grass, and all other living entities, beginning with Lord Brahma, are pleased. The Supreme Personality of God is the super soul of everyone, and he 
is by nature fully pleased. Nonetheless, he came to the arena of Maharaj Gaya and said, I am fully pleased. And Prabhupada in the purport said, who can compare to Maharaj Gaya? In the womb of Gayanti, Maharaj Gaya begot three sons named Chitaratta, Ratha, uh, Sugati, and Avarodhana. In the womb of his wife, Urna, Chitaratra begot a son named Samrat. The wife of Samrat was Utkala, and in her womb, Samrat begot a son named Marichi. In the womb of his wife, Bindumati, Marichi begot a son named Bindu. In the, son, uh, in the womb of his wife, Saragha, Bindu begot a son named Madhu. In the womb of his wife, Sumana, Madhu begot a son named uh, Viravrata. In the womb of his wife, Poja, Viravrata begot two sons named Mantu and Pramantu. In the womb of his wife, Satya, uh, Mantu begot a son named um, Bhavana, and in the womb of his wife Dusana, uh, Bhavana begot a son named Twasta. In the womb of his wife Virochana, Twasta begot a son named Viraja. In the wife of Viraja was the wife of Viraja was Bisuchi, and in her womb Viraja begot one hundred sons and one daughter. Of all these sons, the son named Satrajit was prominent. There is a famous verse about King Viraja. Quote, because of his high qualities and wide fame, King Viraja became the jewel of the dynasty of King Priyavrata. Just as Lord Vishnu, by his transcendental potency, decorates and blesses the demigods. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purports of the fifth canto, 15th chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam, the glories of the descendants of King Priyavrata. So uh, there are some verses to read for the next chapter, but primarily I'm hoping you'll read Purijan Prabhu's summaries of these, this, the rest of the canto. And thank you so much for your association. Thank you for your kindness. Uh, and we will see you all next week. Krantaraj Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai. Thank you. Thank you.